Well, we have one more message left next weekend in this series that we are in called At the Cross. And during the series, we've been talking about how the death of Jesus on the cross changes and affects our lives. We've looked at how the cross brings us freedom and forgiveness, how it gives us an opportunity to endure when we're facing suffering because Christ suffered for us. And then we talked about how the cross changes our self-image, how it gives us a sense of worth and value. And last weekend, we looked at how the cross reminds us we've been adopted into God's family. We belong to him. This weekend, I want to look at a different aspect. I want to look at a power that the cross brings into our life, a transformation that can not only change us, but change all of our relationships. I want to look at something that could change your marriage, change your family, change our church, change your friendships. It's a power that many of us know about, but not very many of us really exercise it in a sense of being really intentional and serious with it. And if we would, and if we do, it really is life-changing. What am I talking about? When I answer that question, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter. Mark chapter 10. While you're doing that, let me set the context. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's been telling his disciples that he's going to suffer and die and rise again. The Bible does not contain all the words of Jesus. We know he spoke many more words to them, so I am sure they have had some long discussions about the fact that Jesus is going to suffer and die. Well, on the way, James and John, whom Jesus nicknames the sons of thunder, you'll find out why in a moment, make this request of him. And the request is found in verse 37. They say to him, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. John Stott says it's probably the worst prayer request recorded in the New Testament. It's kind of like saying, Jesus, make us great. Give us position, give us power, give us security as you come into your kingdom. Now, there are 10 other disciples who hear what they have asked Jesus Verse 41 says they became indignant, that is, they became upset and angry with James and John. Now, part of me hopes that the reason they're angry at James and John is because of their insensitivity to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's about to suffer. He's been telling us that over and over again. How can you guys be thinking of yourselves at a time like this? But that's not why they're indignant. Look at the context of the Passion Week, Luke tells us that in the upper room, on the night before Jesus is going to be betrayed and crucified, while they're having the Passover meal, it says that the disciples were arguing with themselves about who was going to be the greatest. So their indignance, their anger, their being upset with the two, James and John, it's really more about, hey, who do you guys think you are, think that you deserve a place on the left and the right? What about me? He loves me too. I'm his follower too. In fact, Matthew records it from a different angle. You think about the Bible sometimes when you look at the Gospels, you'll get the same story, but it's like, it's like one camera gets this angle, another camera gets this angle. And Matthew tells us that James and John's mother is involved in asking Jesus if they can sit at his left and right side. Now you say, well, which is it? The mother or the sons? Because Mark says it's the sons. Well, it's both and. 
more than likely what happened is the boys asked, can we sit your left or right? And didn't like the response they got. So they told their mother, and being a good Jewish mom, hey, don't listen to me, all right? I'll go and talk to him. And so she goes and she talks to him. Now, my Jewish friends, and, and we know this, uh, you know, they, they kind of kid a little bit, but there's a serious tone to it that, you know, parents take, Jewish parents take a lot of pride and a lot of contentment over the accomplishments of their children, especially their sons, you know, and their professional success. And so this little, there's this little joke about um, uh, an ad that a Jewish couple took out in a paper, an announcement. It went something like this. Mr. and Mrs. Marvin Rosenblum are proud to announce the birth of their son, Dr. Jonathan Rosenblum. <laughs> but you don't have to be Jewish. Every one of us takes great pride in our students' achievements. But I want, I want to speak to you as parents for just a moment. When you think about this with me, there's nothing wrong with encouraging our students to be successful and to achieve. But if we lead them to think that their success and their achievement is what makes them valuable and it gives them worth, we've done great harm to them. And in the culture that we live in today, that's really difficult, that's really difficult for us, especially as parents and grandparents. I was thinking about that, and that passage came to my mind right away when Jesus said, you know, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and thrown into a pond of water than to cause one of these little ones of mine to stumble. I cause my kids to stumble when I make them think that their worth and the value is based on their grade, their sport, their success, the right school, et cetera, et cetera. And so maybe some of us need to back away a little bit and go, oh my goodness, what am I doing right now? What message am I sending? See, James and John were very successful businessmen. Their father, Zebedee, owned a, fl- a, a fleet of, of fishing boats from what we know. They're used to position of power. They're used to kind of having some success and having some wealth, though compared to today, it, it would not really be wealth. And so in essence, what they're saying to Jesus is, in your kingdom, you know, we've already been kind of successful in your kingdom, okay? Uh, our business was pretty big in the Galilee. In your kingdom, we really like a spot, one on the left, one on the right. Very corporate, <laughs> VP of this, VP of that, all right? Make, that's, that's what we want. And Jesus' response to them is so different than what they request. If you look at the end of the story and you come to verse 45, here's what he says to them, and I want to contrast it to you, for you. In 37, they say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now watch Jesus' response. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's, let's say it together out loud. Ready? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, just take a look at those two verses for a moment. Isn't there like a remarkable difference between their request and what Jesus says? Like a huge difference between the two verses. Great big gap. The first verse is all about self. Self-promotion. The other verse, the words of Jesus, is all about serving. It's all about servanthood. Which verse reflects your mindset the most? Not just adults, but you students. Which verse reflects your mindset the most? Which do you think ought to reflect your mindset the most? You know, if Jesus had lived by this verse, 
uh, first of all, he would never have left the Father's presence. He would never have taken on human flesh. And he certainly wouldn't have suffered. And I absolutely would not have died for the rest of us. And if he hadn't done that, we'd all be condemned. We'd all be hopeless today. We may not even be here today. He took on the form and the attitude of a servant. And billions of people's lives have been changed. If you and I take on the same attitude of a servant... Our marriage will change, our family will change, our friendships will change, our church will change, our schools will change, our job will change, and anybody who interacts with us will experience some kind of change in their life. But the question is, how do you get there? How, I mean, how, did, how did James, John, Mom, and the rest move from self to servanthood? What took place in their life? What has to take place in our lives? Well, that brings us back to verse 45, but this time look at it in your Bibles, Okay. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I want you to focus on that word ransom for a moment. That word that Jesus uses in the Greek means to loosen or, or, or to unloosen from something. To detach from bondage to someone or something. To be set free. Well, what, what is he talking about being set free from? He's talking about being set free from, from a master. Tim Keller suggests that he's talking about being set free from the master called self, given the context that we have here. And certainly, all of us tend to put ourselves at the center. We call it self-centeredness. All of us are into self-promotion. All of us are into self-success. All of us are into self-affirmation. We're very concerned about ourselves. And so one of the masters we try to please is self, but self is a terrible master to please. I mean, if you try to please yourself, it will lead you to bigotry. It will lead you to anger. It will lead you to, it will lead you to jealousy. It will lead you to pride. It will lead you to insecurities. It will lead you into feeling entitled. It will lead you into feeling like the victim and sorry for yourself because either you're promoting yourself and riding herd or you're having the herd ride over you. And you're, and you're, you know, you're, you're feeling sorry for yourself. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter, two verse, or chapter 3, verse 2, and he says, in the end times, people will be lovers of themselves. Sounds like selfies, doesn't it? Anyway. <laughs> lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to the parents, ungrateful, unholy, etc. Sounds like you could have written that yesterday, doesn't it? I mean, the world has always struggled with self. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, when our parents rebelled against God in the garden, we've all had struggles with ourselves. But in an individualistic society like the Western culture is, where success and materialism is the message that we just hear beat every day, it just drones on in every form imaginable. As you hear that false narrative over and over and over and over and over again, you can't help but be driven to yourself. Do I measure up? Am I acceptable? In the eyes of the world, am I just, do I have a purpose? We were talking about that in the series. Am I justified? Am I doing the right things? Jesus says, I have come to ransom you, to buy you from that wicked master called self. So you don't have to, you don't have to obey, you don't have to listen to that voice that is so insecure, that's looking for a purpose, a reason for existing. Set me free from that. But he's also ransomed us from idolatry. Idolatry. Um, in uh, the New Testament, there's this word called epithumia. It's a Greek word, and it means desire, but it actually means 
over-desire, to over-desire something. Now, you can, you know, desire wrong things. You can desire good things. You can over-desire good things. And we all struggle. We all struggle with idolatry in our lives. Say, I don't struggle with idolatry in my life. Several years ago, I was flying into Myanmar. It was, it was a day, clear day, and and as I'm flying in, I'm sitting next to the window, I'm looking out the window, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, pops up this massive statue of Buddha, golden statue, huge. And I thought to myself, oh, land of idols, Buddhism. But then the more I thought about that, I realized, you know what? Our idols are just as real, they're just more subtle. But they're there. An idol is anything that I depend on more than I would depend on God. An idol is anything that um, I look to as my ultimate source of happiness. It provides me more happiness than God would provide for me. So that could be money. That could be success. That could be my career. That could be a relationship. That could be a person. Whatever I look to and say, this is my point of happiness, that becomes my idol. And the way you can know if something's your point of happiness is if it was taken away from you, what would you do? Now, there's some good things that I understand and, and people that are taken away from us, we would grieve terribly. I understand that. But there are a lot of things that, I mean, ultimately, do they really matter in life? That if they were taken away from us, we would feel distraught. This is my happiness. This is my joy. This is my, my success. I might have to get over that, but ultimately, do I realize that God is my point of success, my hope, and my joy? Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 12, says, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Don't give in to things thinking that things is what's going to make you happy and content. And listen carefully. I say this very carefully. Don't give in to people and think that they ultimately are your source of happiness, contentment. That ruins more marriages. Say, what? By the way, we're going to do a series. We're going to talk a little bit about it next weekend on uh, right after Easter on, on intimacy and relationships. Marriage, what does intimacy mean for singles? We're going to look through the Song of Solomon. Back to the message. You say, what do you mean by that? If I make my spouse my source of happiness, my source of joy, I've now asked an imperfect human being like me to play God. And I guarantee you, if you think that your spouse is your source of ultimate happiness and joy, you are in, if you haven't figured it out already, for a rude awakening. Because sometimes they aren't very godly. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Ask my wife. All right? My ultimate source of joy and happiness has to be God because he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God says, I've come to ransom you from idolatry. Then he says, I really, and I believe this is in the context, he's come to ransom us from the law. You say, what do you mean by the law? Well, I'm referring to this law. I mean the Ten Commandments, the 600 some laws, right? But I'm also talking about the fact that everybody here is, is given to want to keep the law. You say, what do you mean by that? Everybody here is born with this homing device inside of us as part of our DNA to want to obey the law. Now, the rule I want to obey may not be the rule you want to obey. It may not even be a rule for you. Your rules and my rules may be very different, but stitched into our very DNA is this sense of keeping the law, of, of doing what is right. 
That's because God created the universe. And part of God's creation of the universe is not just the material universe, but the immaterial universe. That is, God has woven into the universe a moral, a sense of moral law, moral truth. That's why you can go and visit people who've never heard about God, never had the Bible, Stone Age people like my parents ministered to, and they have a keen sense of right and wrong. And when wrong is done, they feel like something needs to be done to make it right. And the more that they do what is right, the better they feel about themselves. And the same thing is true for you and me, right? We all do wrong, but we hope we're doing more right than other people are doing. And if I feel like I'm better than you, then I feel justified. See what I'm trying to say? Now, unfortunately, even though we know that the Bible teaches us as believers that we're saved by grace, not by our efforts, not by keeping the law, not by being good enough, that it's not by works, lest anybody should boast, that it's all by God's unconditional love, we still drag the cross into a form of what I call Christian legalism. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, think about it. I struggle with this. Maybe you don't. I'm probably the only one in the room that does. But I can be going along in my journey with God, and I'm dotting the I's and I'm crossing the T's. And what I mean by that is I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to make sure I speak right, I'm trying to make sure I behave right, that I think right, that I do things right. And I get this mindset in me, it's like default in my mind. Again, I'm probably talking to myself right now. That, that if I live this way and act this way, it makes God happy. And I want God to be happy because I don't want God to be angry with me. Because if God's angry with me, I don't know what he might do to me. Right? So I want to be good. And so one of the ways I'm good is I kind of benchmark, my, benchmark myself against, my, you know, against other believers. You know, I'm not like that and I don't say that and, I didn't act like her today, and then it makes me feel better about myself. And then all of a sudden, life happens, right? It's a crisis. It's a problem financially, emotionally. Wake up on the wrong side of the bed, don't feel well, get stressed out. And pretty soon, you say things you wish you weren't saying. You think things you wish you weren't thinking. You might even do some things you wish you didn't do. And then all of a sudden, you just go, oh, my goodness, I'm in trouble. I got to get to the cross, right? And I tell God, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry for what I did. God, please forgive me. And then I get done with that and I feel better about myself. And then I go back into life again, trying to dot the I's, cross the T's. Now, what's wrong with that scenario? What's wrong with that scenario is I've got this mindset that in order for God to keep loving me, I've got to behave well. And that's the wrong, that's the wrong motive. Why do you do what you do? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you serve? Why do you give? Why do you attend church? Is it to deal with guilt? Is it to make you, is it so that God will be happy with you? That God will be angry with you? Can I let you know right now that God isn't angry or unhappy with you? That it has nothing to do with your behavior? My goodness, if God's continuing relationship with you and me was about how well we behaved, we'd all be in trouble, Right? Because some days we do really well and other days we do really bad. God's love stays consistent. He keeps seeing us like we're perfect. Isn't that amazing? See, that sounds really good, but it sounds dangerous. I mean, if I think that way, then, then I'm like not motivated to sin. We talked a little about that last weekend. Then I'm not, I mean, I'm not motivated to do what's right. I feel like I can go ahead and sin. I kind of need a little bit of fear and a little bit of rejection to, to kind of make me want to do what's right. That's a sick way to live. That's a really sick way to live. That's not how God wants you to live. I mean, Jesus died on the cross to ransom you from that kind of living. He wants you to obey. He wants you to obey because he's dotted the I's, he's crossed the T's for you. He wants you to obey because he loves you. He wants you to do it out of a response of love for what he's done for you. Not with the sense that I've got to do this to be loved by God. 
So which is it? It's a fine, it's like this thread. It's so, so thin, right? And it's just, it's just really easy to cross into it. At least I struggle with it. I, I'm amazed sometimes how I get into this, this mindset of, I gotta be good because I want God to like me. I want God to be happy with me. Like, where does that come from? Rather than God loves me, God likes me, no matter whether I'm good or bad, oh, I wanna be, I wanna honor him. And then I go to him when I blow it and I say, Father, forgive me if I confess my sins. He's faithful and just forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Why? Because I'm good enough? No, because he's gracious. So he rescues us. He ransoms us from self, from idolatry, from the law. Now the question is, how does that play into our lives? How does that make you and me, how does that transform us from being selfish to being servants? And we got the theology behind it. How does it work? Let's answer the question and go back to the text. Verse 37, the guys raised the request. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized the baptism I'm baptized with? It's a rhetorical question. In essence, what Jesus is saying is you can't drink my cup. You can't be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with. And I'll, I'll show you why in just a moment. But the guys answer and they go, we can. Yep, we can drink that cup. We can be baptized by that baptism. We can do it. Sons of thunder, right? Then Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what does Jesus mean here? What does he mean, drink this cup? But you just said, Pastor Dale, that they can't drink the cup, but then he says you will drink the cup. What's that all about? Rather than explain it, let me demonstrate it, okay? And let's look at this together. It's very important. I want you to think about James, John, Mom, the rest, and you and me standing on this side of the cross. This represents self. And all of us are driven by nature to justify ourselves. Through achievement, through performance, what others think about us, through success, whatever it is. We've been talking about it for weeks. And Jesus, in essence, says to us, you can't. You can't justify yourself. All your attempts are worthless. It does not impress God one iota, one dot. So he invites his followers to the cross. He invites us to the cross. He says, no, I am going to drink this cup for all of you. And in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah and Ezekiel and other places, the cup usually represents the wrath of God, the anger of God, the indignation of God against evil and against sin. Jesus says, I'm going to drink that cup. In fact, over in Nahum chapter 1, verse 6, when's the last time you read something on Nahum? All right? Nahum chapter 1, it took me like a half an hour to find it. I'm kidding, all right? 
Nahum chapter one, verse six says, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. See, when Jesus, when his capillaries burst and he sweats blood in the garden, and he says, if it's possible, let this cup be removed from me. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. He's about to drink the condemnation, the anger of God. He's about to drink it. He's about to take it on himself for you and for me, and for James and John and mom and the rest. None of us can drink it. It's poison to us. It would kill us. Only Christ can drink it, and it kills him. But because he's a pure lamb of God, it does not consume him. He's risen from the dead. None of us would be able to rise from the dead after drinking that cup. We would be eternally damned. So he takes that and he drinks it on himself. And then he says to us, yes, you will drink from a cup, but the cup he's now referring to is the cup of servanthood. If you'll let me, in essence, what Jesus is saying, if you will let me die your death, substitute myself for you, if you'll let me take on myself the condemnation that you deserve, if you'll accept that, then you'll become my servant. And you will suffer, but you will suffer for the sake of the gospel. You will suffer to make me known to others. In essence, what he's saying to them is, look, when you abandon position, power, security by self-effort and accept me as your power, as your position, as your security, when you make me your master, when you realize all I've done for you, then you can become my servant. Because when that happens, in essence, what Jesus is saying is, I want you to take off that backpack full of self-effort that we've been talking about, that backpack of competition, that backpack of self, of idols, of the law, of trying to perform, and I just want you to leave it at the cross. I've done it all for you. You are freed. You are forgiven. You are loved. Be my servant. Be my servant. I feel so free from that pack. When I accept what God has done for me, I'm free to serve you. See, I don't ask what you can do for me anymore because he's done, it, he's done everything for me. Now I can do for you. I don't, I don't need you to thank me and tell me how great I am and what a wonderful job that I did. And if you don't, I'm gonna moan and be upset and I'm gonna leave this church because nobody appreciates me because he's fully satisfied with me. He loves me. He, he did this for me. This is, I'm doing this for him ultimately, not for you. The only time I get worried and feel like quitting and leaving and I'm unhappy and nobody appreciates me, nobody values me, is when I go back to this side of the cross. And it's about me. And you didn't value me, you didn't appreciate me, you didn't esteem me, you didn't make me feel good about myself. Of course we need affirmation, of course it's nice to receive encouragement, but we don't serve for that reason, at least I hope we don't serve for that reason. See, how do I get to the place where I can serve that way? Okay, I'll hang it at the cross, I'll let it go, but how do, you, how, do you, how do you do that and serve others? One of my favorite stories, it's a parable. It's about a monastery out in the forest, far away. And people used to go out of their way to visit the monastery because it was one of those 
loving environments they'd ever been to. The brothers, the monks there, they just loved each other, served each other, cared for each other, and people would go there just for healing in their souls. And then they go back home again. Well, in recent years, things in the monastery weren't working out so well. The brothers had begun to fight with each other. Some of them didn't talk to each other. Some of them had kind of frosty, angry feelings toward each other. They weren't kind. They were kind of being selfish. And the abbot who was in charge of the brothers was very upset and concerned about this. So he went to visit a rabbi in the forest that he knew, Rabbi Jeremiah. He said, Rabbi Jeremiah, he said, I don't know what to do. Rabbi said, my, my brothers, my, my, the monks, they're fighting with each other. They're unhappy. People don't come anymore. I mean, people come and they, they leave feeling worse than when they came because of the environment of the monastery. What do I do? What do I do? And Jeremiah, the rabbi, looked at him. He said, dear friend, he said, I've had a vision. He said, well, tell me about the vision. He said, in my vision, I have seen the Messiah in your midst. And the abbot is flabbergasted. Really? Well, he knew it wasn't him. So he, he made haste and went to the monastery as quickly as he could. He gathered all the brothers, all the monks together. And he said, brothers, listen, Rabbi Jeremiah has had a vision. He has seen the Messiah in our midst. Silence. They all start looking around. And very soon, Naibu and Alexander, who hadn't been talking to each other, began to speak to each other very kindly. And Rufus and Peter, who had been kind of frosty toward each other, well, they unthawed that relationship and they gave each other a hug. Soon, the monks were making way for the other monk. No, no, you go first. No, you have the head of the line. No, you receive the larger portion. Let me help you with your chores. Let me pray with you tonight. Let's spend some time together. And soon as visitors came, they were overwhelmed by the kindness, by the hospitality, by the love that was found there at the monastery. And people were just streaming there to be healed and go back and bring it to others. What changed in the monastery? What caused this change to take place? The answer is very simple. You know it, don't you? They started treating each other as though they were Jesus. Because Jesus was in their midst. It reminds me of those words of Jesus in his parable in Matthew chapter 25 in verse 37 when he said, then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you we're doing it to me. Want to change your marriage? See Jesus in your spouse. Serve him, serve her as though they were the Lord himself. Want to change your family? Treat your children like they are Christ. Treat your parents like they are Christ. Want to change your neighbor? Treat him or her like they are Christ. Want to change your church? Treat each other when you see each other as though that's the Lord. Want to change your job? Treat your boss like he or she is Jesus. You say, oh, wait a minute, you've gone too far. <laughs> the problem is they think they are Jesus. They use his name all the time, but not in a good way. I, I just can't accept that. I'm serious. Think about this with me for a minute. You may not be able to see Jesus in them now, but unless you see Jesus in them, they'll probably never come to know Jesus. You've got to treat 
them the way Jesus treated Peter when he said, when he met him, and you will become a rock. You've got to see what Christ could do in their life and start to treat them that way, and that will open them up to who Christ is and what Christ could be like in their life. Because in essence, what they're going to see is Christ in you. If they see Christ in you, they see what they can become. But yes, I know it's hard to wash somebody's feet when they kick you in the teeth. But Jesus washed Peter's feet and Judas's feet and your feet and my feet. That's how you change the world. That's how you change your marriage, how you change your family, how we change the church, how we change our teachers, how we change our students. We treat them as though they were Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, it is easy to say these things. It is much more challenging to practice them. And God, we confess to you that what keeps us from practicing this truth is our selfishness, our continual measuring of our worth and our value by our success, by our performance, by our achievement, by worshiping the idols in our lives, God, by trying to keep all the rules. Lord, it's, it's insane. So I'm praying, Lord, that you would help us to stand before the cross today, like we've been saying this entire series, and abandon ourselves to you. Surrender ourselves to you and surrender ourselves to your love, your forgiveness, your grace, and your mercy. And stop trying to impress you. Own our sinfulness. Confess our sinfulness. But continue in your love and in your grace. In these next few moments, the team is going to sing a song that talks about surrender and abandoning to the Lord. I want you to sit and listen, and when the Spirit moves you, where you just feel led to stand because now those words are your words, they're your prayer. When these words become your prayer, I want you to stand. Not worry about whether you're the only one standing or not. But at the right time and the right way, you stand, and then eventually we'll all be singing it together. So you respond as God speaks to you. Completely to you. 
motivated to love and to serve out of what he has done. So as we continue singing, we're gonna sing, so I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned. I just wanna encourage, encourage you if you feel led to do this, just to, just to hold your hands out like this and to just offer your life to God with open hands, not holding it tight to yourself, but holding it out to what he wants to do. So let's sing this out. Sing all stand, come on. pray that that song will just resonate in your mind and heart and become your prayer this week. Listen, none of us are perfect. We're all on this journey with God. And the good news is God is so patient, so loving, so unconditional His love. Don't try to earn His love. Just live out of His love. Be His servants. If you'd like someone to pray with you, one of our pastors will be here at the front and uh, our prayer partners as well to pray with you. May God bless you and keep you encouraged. Have a wonderful rest of the day.